Uh, can we please rise as we read from God's Word? This is uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Genesis chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 26 to 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. May we seated. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for your word as we discover uh, the riches of your word, Lord, especially as it relates to us as human beings. Pray, Lord, that uh, we are able to uh, to worship you anew and, uh, and to learn more, not just, not just about you, O Lord, but about ourselves, and Lord, and to, and to realize why we are so special uh, to have you as our Father. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so on the 4th of uh, July, 1776, I think that date should ring a bell to some of us, you know, the 13 American colonies then at war with the Empire of Great Britain, came together to draft a statement declaring their independence from the British Empire. And this statement is known as the Declaration of Independence, and it is the foundational document in the formation of the United States of America. And now, though this is a large document, its second sentence is considered to be its most important, a sentence that would change not only the course of human history, but in its influence on human rights across the world, that of the world itself. And this is what that sentence says. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You see, this statement was not formed in a vacuum. It is because... The founders of the United States were Christian, and the statement is a consequence of the Christian understanding of the creation of human beings. See, the Bible says in the passage we just read that there's something special about men and women. They are created in the image of God. And as we continue our series on theology, the doctrine of man is particularly important. It is important because it is the link between what we have seen about God and what we are going to see about sin and the gospel, about our need for salvation and a savior. But it is also important because of our cultural context today, the world we find ourselves in. See, our society is in flux. It is redrawing its understanding of what it means to be human. And it's formulating laws and policies that are dictated by this so-called new understanding. It would not be a stretch to say that the second sentence of the Declaration of Independence would no longer be considered self-evident by today's people. 
They did not believe in the revelation of the Bible or indeed in the existence of the Creator Himself. And that has vast implications for how we live and thrive and survive and how we protect those who are seen to be weak and dependent. And ultimately on how we view ourselves as individuals. Make no mistake, a biblical understanding of the doctrine of man will put us in direct opposition to the prevailing winds of society and of culture. But as we read Genesis 1, as we begin to comprehend the utter grandness of the claim being made there with respect to the status of the human being, we'll begin to see why this doctrine is something worthy to be fought for, to be despised for, to be persecuted for. To give up the claim of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 is to give up on humanity itself. As we read through Genesis chapter 1 with its narrative of the creation of the world and of the stars and of the earth, with its waters and the plants and the animals, and then we come to verse 26, we have to pause and reflect. You come to verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and likeness. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and likeness. A theologian named John Murray puts it this way. See, the formula is not that, the formula being what God said, is not that of simple dictation, as in the case of light. God said, let there be light. Nor is it that of command in reference to existing things. Let the earth bring forth plants. Let the waters bring forth the fish. Let the earth bring forth the animals. See, in Genesis 1 and verse 26, the terms let us make indicate that there is a unique engagement of God's thought and counsel. And it points to us the fact that something correspondingly unique is about to take place. The term let us make indicates that there is a unique engagement of divine thought and counsel. And it shows us that something correspondingly unique is about to take place. When God says, let us make, it is showing that man is, the, is a unique creation. And the way he is created places him far above every other, create, every other creature in the pantheon of creation. You know, what's interesting is that the second of the Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not create and worship any graven images. And yet, there is an image of God on the earth. And that is ourselves. So very briefly, today I aim to cover the following aspects of this doctrine. What does it mean to be in the image of God? How does that impact our dignity and our desires and our destiny? And how do we recover the image of God in us? Because we are now fallen, we are now sinful that image has been marred, it has been distorted. So how do we recover the image of God in us? What does it mean to be in the image of God? Many people have come up with various ways, some very creative, to explain what it means for men and women to be in the image of God. See, the Mormons believe that God has a body. Therefore, they say the fact that men and women have bodies is what makes them in the image of God. Uh, among Christians, many say it's because we have intelligence. 
and the capacity to make intellectual decisions that makes us in the image of God. Others say it is because we have morality and we can make moral choices. A very popular view uh, earlier in the century, in the, in the 20th century, was that it was relationships that defined us to be in God's image because God is relational within himself. You know, the famous theologian Karl Barth said that it was our creation as male and female that shows that we are in the image of God. Recently, it is more in fashion to say that it is what we do that defines us as being in the image of God. So of taking dominion over all creation and of safeguarding God's resources here on earth. But to debate what specifically constitutes the image of God within us is to kind of miss the point. You see, what does Genesis 1 and verse 26 say? It says, let us make man in our image and likeness. So, the image is intrinsic to the creation of man in the way we were made. God does not say, let us give man the potential to develop the image of God. He says, let us make man in the image of God. It refers to something a human being is rather than something a human being has or does. It refers to something that a human being is rather than something a human being has or does. Secondly, the Hebrew words for image and likeness both mean the same thing. They both mean something that is similar but not identical to the thing it represents. Something that is similar but not identical to the thing it represents. So the original Hebrew readers of Genesis would not have thought that Genesis verses 1 and verse 26 is an invitation to list out all of the qualities of human beings that resembles God. Rather, they would have read it very simply as, let us make man to be like us and represent us on earth. So how do you find or how do you figure out the representation of God in human beings? It is not by making a list of qualities. It's simple. We need to know God first to know who he is in his being and in his actions. Then we can look at ourselves and we can say we are like God in this aspect or the other. We often do it backwards. But we cannot truly know ourselves till we know God. And when we realize who God is, we begin to understand how we represent him in our creativity, in our relational natures, in our appreciation of beauty and so on. We are like God in many aspects of our nature. And all the ways in which we are like God is a result of us being made in the image of God. All the ways in which we are like God is a result of us being made in the image of God. The internal, the intrinsic image expresses itself in outward representation. You only have to go down a few chapters in Genesis to find further clarity on this. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 3. And that says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. You notice that Seth is described to be in the image and likeness of Adam, just as we are in the image and likeness of God. Now, does that mean Seth had Adam's blue eyes? 
you know, or his six-pack, or his uh, skill in naming things, or writing poetry, or his bad luck with the ladies. No, it, it, it just means that Seth was like Adam in many ways. Not all his ways. And whatever qualities that Seth had, which made him like Adam, was a result of him being in the image of Adam. See, if you don't know Adam, you cannot know how Seth is like Adam. And that's all it is saying. Seth was in the image of Adam. So to summarize it, by virtue of being human, one is in the image of God. It is not dependent on the presence or absence of anything else. You know, experiencing relationships and doing things are the consequences and applications of the image of God within us. It is not the image itself. The absence of these things do not remove the image of God from us. So then we ask the question, so that is Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. What about Genesis 3? What impact does sin and the fall have on the image of God in human beings? When Adam sinned, did we lose the image of God within us? Or does it mean that sinners are no longer in the image of God, just those who are believers? And again, the answer to this question comes in Genesis itself. Soon after the flood, as Noah begins to repopulate the earth, God prescribes the punishment for murder. In Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. And this is what God says. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. You you see, you notice the motivation for the death penalty in this case for murder. God is not saying, well, man has sinned and has now fallen from the state in which I created him. Therefore, if a man is murdered, what is the big deal? No, God says murder is a violation of the sanctity of human life. An attack on the part of creation that most represents God, even in its fallen state. So the image of God, even in sinful human beings, is not lost. I was watching a documentary recently in which uh, a, a homicide detective from Texas said, you know, homicide is murder. He said the, the, the homicide detective performs his duty on behalf of God because the murder victim is no longer there to make his case, to state his case, and to seek justice. So the image of God in sinful human beings is not lost. And further validation of this comes in the New Testament. In the New Testament, when James is talking about the two-sided impact of the human tongue, he says in James chapter 3 and verse 9, it's a very familiar verse, with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So we are all, all human beings have the image of God. But there's a consequence as a result of sin and of the fall. And that is that the image of God in human beings is now distorted. It is marred. What does that mean? It means that we are less representative of God than Adam was. We are no longer morally pure like Adam was because we are now sinful. We use our intellect to lie and to deceive. Our love is no longer selfless, but we selfishly lust for power and control. So though man is still in the image of God, 
in every aspect of life, there is a distortion. There's a distorted likeness, many qualities that have been lost. So the teacher in Ecclesiastes says in chapter 7 and verse 29, See, this alone that I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So the image of God is distorted. Every human being is still in the image of God, but that image has been marred. Therefore, there is a need for that image to be restored and refreshed. And we are not capable of accomplishing that on ourselves. It needs a second act of creation, a recreation, so to speak, accomplished by God through the work of the perfect man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, who in his earthly life showed us once again what it means to be perfectly like God. You see, the gospel is more than just about getting to heaven. The the gospel aims to renew our humanity, to once again make us truly into the image of God. So, knowing that every human being is made in the image of God has implications for all aspects of our life. And knowing that the image of God in us is marred due to sin can identify what is wrong or lacking in our lives. Now, focusing on any one of them can probably be a sermon in itself, but I hope to quickly cover the implications of this doctrine on three core aspects of the human experience. Our dignity, our desires, and our destiny. I think that was our dignity, our purpose, and our destiny, but I I found a second word with D. So our dignity, our desires, and our destiny. That is our worth and significance, our wants and needs, and our future fate. So when we talk about our dignity, we ask, as men and women, where does our significance come from? What is the measure of our worth in this world? The Bible has a very simple answer. The Bible says we are all significant because God created us specially and uniquely in his image. See, in our size and in our nature, we seem to pale in comparison to the majesty and the beauty of the rest of his creation, and yet We are the ones who are invested with God's special care and benevolence. You know, we all know the psalm. In Psalm 8, the psalmist says, When I look at your your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? But he is mindful, and he cares. He is involved with us from our forming moments to our dying breaths. David says, for you formed my inward parts. You have knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You see, the dignity that is bestowed upon humanity due to God's image being in them transcends the boundaries of age and of race and of gender and economics and genetics and culture and achievements. The Puritan... um, John Flavel said that the soul of the, pure, of the poorest beggar that cries at the door for a crust of bread is in its own nature of equal dignity and value with the soul of the most glorious monarch that sits upon the throne. The soul of the beggar is of equal dignity and value with the soul of the most glorious king who sits upon the throne. That is 
the dignity that human beings have because God's image is to be found in them. But paradoxically, in our fallen state, we as men and women have used these differences to erect barriers between ourselves, to say that somehow one person is worth less than the other, that one individual is worth, worthy of more protection than the other. And this has been the case throughout history in every civilization. The poor have been thought to be cursed by the gods in contrast to the rich. The weak have been tossed aside to slave at the command of the strong. The defenseless have been deemed to be unworthy of protection because they drag down the rest of society. You know, history is filled with tales like that of the ancient city of Sparta, which I'm sure many boys and men know, where babies who are deemed unworthy to be soldiers in the future, after examination by a council of inspectors, were abandoned on hillsides, either to die of exposure to the elements or to be picked up and nurtured by the outcasts of society. That is how history has always treated people. And of course, in our modern societies, we claim that scientific knowledge is the ultimate standard of truth. So what does science say? There was a very famous chief justice of the Supreme Court in the US. He was a major intellectual in the early 20th century. His name was Oliver Holmes. And he wrote a lot of the, you know, the judgments that form precedent in, 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 in uh, today's United States. And he said, scientifically, I see no reason for attributing to a man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or to a grain of sand. Scientifically, I see no reason for attributing to a man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or to a grain of sand. See, we worship at the altar of science because that seems to free us from our accountability to our creator. And yet, all men are afraid to take their beliefs to their logical ends. See, modern society is filled with paradox of people who want to claim freedom from the constraints of divine revelation and yet protect themselves from the viciousness of a world in which only the fittest survive. They want to have it both ways. You know, G.K. Chesterton uh, said this a long time ago, and it's still true today. He said, as a politician, the atheist will cry out that all war is a waste of life. And then as a philosopher, he will admit that all life is a waste of time. The atheist goes first to a political meeting where he complains that people are being treated as if they were animals. Then he goes to a scientific meeting where he proves that all human beings are actually animals. And nowhere is this paradox most glaringly and tragically illustrated than in the legally sanctioned practices of modern abortion. See, the intellectuals of our age justify abortion because somehow the fetus cannot exhibit the characteristics of humanity, whether that be reason or independence, whatever it is. Now, when these characteristics become evident and when the fetus can be called a person is a matter of legal dispute. It is either 24 weeks or it is when the fetus exits 
the mother's body, no longer dependent exclusively on the mother for survival or impeding on her bodily autonomy. Somehow within this time frame, the fetus becomes a person that is now deemed worthy of having the right to live. But of course, ethicists and, and, and medical practitioners who recognize the underpinning of this logic, like people like Peter Singer, you should Google him, and who are unafraid to carry it out to its logical end, advocate that infanticide, which is the killing of babies up to the age of one year old, is also permissible. As one of them says rightly, there's nothing magical about passing through the birth canal that transforms a baby from a fetus to a person. The baby is still dependent. He or, she, he or she still imposes the same, if not more, burden on the parents, still is unable to exercise its intellectual facilities or faculties to fend for himself or herself. We fool ourselves when we say that we can be the adjudicator of what determines the worth and significance of a person. The only true, the only absolute, the only unchanging standard of human dignity is that found in the unique creation of men and women by the agency of God and his bestowal of the image of God upon them. Any society which seeks to make any other criteria the standard of determining the worth of a human life risks not just silencing the, wo the voices of those who cannot speak from the womb. They are condemned to repeat the mistakes of human history that devalues the worth of anyone who is deemed unfit to contribute and thereby are a drag to society. Only the Christian worldview, the view of the Bible, deems, deems every human life worthy of dignity, sanctity, and protection without condition and without prejudice. That is our dignity. What about our desires? A proper understanding of human wants and needs is impossible without realizing how being made in the image of God influences our desires, our wants, our needs. You see, the writer of Genesis expects us to realize that being the object of God's unique attention and creation presupposes or brings about a relationship between man and God that is not shared by any other creature. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear that the, the highest desire of human life, the greatest joy is only found in our relationship with God. So David says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Similarly, in, um, in Psalm 73, Asaph describes the overwhelming superiority of enjoying God in comparison to other pleasures like this. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know, the Presbyterian Church has a catechism called the Westminster Catechism. And it puts it, the chief end of man, the true purpose of human life, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And within this framework of being in a relationship with God, 
of being able to enjoy God of, and of glorifying him, every other human desire makes sense. Every inclination of our heart seems to then have a purpose. God is a relational God, and being made in his image, we hunger for relationships, for love, and for intimacy. He is a speaking God. The Bible begins with God speaking, and God gave Adam the gift of language. You know, one of the first tasks that Adam is asked to do is to name the animals. So we desire to speak and to communicate with each other. God gave Adam the mandate to be fruitful and to fill and subdue the earth, to have dominion over it. Adam was to find pleasure in working the earth to make it a suitable habitat for mankind, not just by cultivating crops for food, but also by developing the arts and the sciences and literature, by being creatively engaged in work and play, to not merely survive, but to thrive in this paradise in which he had been placed and over which he was uniquely qualified to rule because he was made in the image of God. When we seek to make God our utmost desire and our true satisfaction, every other desire of our life is not just attainable, it is logical. But when Adam rebelled against God's mandates and he was expelled from the paradise of Eden, he was left with the thirst of these desires without the means to be satisfied by them. Work became struggle and toil. Relationships became tainted by deceit and abuse. Intimacy was overtaken by lust. Communication was replaced by confusion at the Tower of Babel. And godly dominion was exchanged for the, power of, for the pursuit of power marked by violence and the shedding of blood. When the enjoyment of God becomes secondary to the exaltation of ourselves, mankind becomes slaves to their desires rather than finding pleasure in them. That's why Paul says in Romans 1 that when mankind failed to acknowledge the glory of God, God gave them over to the wickedness of their minds, filled with all kinds of evil and covetousness and malice, envy and deceit, Instead of being rulers over the earth, men and women are now being ruled by the pursuit of their wicked hearts, endlessly chasing after the winds of futile desire, doomed to die unsatisfied with their efforts because no desire can replace the satisfaction that comes from knowing and enjoying God fully. See, we live in a world today where our desires and our inclinations define us rather than the other way around. We are free to choose to do whatever we want, and yet nothing we seem to do seems to be enough. So we explore new frontiers in pleasure and in pain, believing that the thrill of trying something new will somehow compensate for the boredom and the mundanity of our nine-to-five lives. If we are unwilling to put our bodies or our reputations in harm's way, we take refuge by vicariously seeking to indulge these same desires, our senses, in the privacy of our own homes, through books and television and the internet. Do you guys know about uh, the Amazon Kindle? It's, it's like an uh, electronic book reader. Do you know which was the first book to sell more than a million copies on the Kindle? It was not the Bible, neither was it something like The Lord of the Rings. The first book to sell more than a million copies on the Kindle was Fifty Shades of Grey. The reason 
is because people on the bus and on the subway could now discreetly delight you know, in the riskiness of that material without being frowned upon because the book has no cover. Every human being is seeking what Adam once had, the ability to live an abundant and satisfying life, a life in which every desire has significance and purpose. But without knowing God and being in a proper relationship with him, the longing of our heart is bound to remain unfulfilled over the course of our earthly lives. Lastly, one of the key aspects of being made in the image of God, something that differentiates the human being from every other creature, is the sense and awareness of a distant future, of time beyond the next moment or tomorrow. Even though science has preached for years that nothing awaits us beyond the grave, the majority of men and women still believe in destiny. That is, that there is indeed a future after physical death. Why is that? You know, Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11 says that God has put eternity into the heart of man. That sense of timelessness, that longing to know what awaits us in the distant future, the feeling that death is an unwelcome intruder in the course of our existence is a core element of our shared humanity. But when you are not in a relationship with the eternal God, the prospect of eternity is frightening. Your destiny is uncertain. You would rather that there be a finality to death and that you cease to exist because if not, the alternatives are too fearful to comprehend. So in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 it says, it has been appointed for man to die once and after that, comes judgment. Judgment, the fear of judgment, the fear of punishment, that is the consequence of our rebellion against our creator, makes human beings want to stave off death for as long as possible. It is intrinsic to the nature of fallen man to want to live for as long as possible, not because life itself is something that cannot be had enough of, but rather because the great unknown that awaits him or her beyond the grave is frightening. And we have become very good at it, at living longer lives. See, in 1900, the average life expectancy, and I'm going to use I'm going to use the U.S. as an example. The average life expectancy in the U.S. was does anyone want to guess? Yeah, was 47 years old. Okay, today it is about 78 years. Yet the fear of dying has not subsided. In 1900, the two main causes of death were influenza, that is the flu, and tuberculosis. You know, there's a book called uh, The Emperor of All Maladies, and in that book, the author describes the situation in, in, in the United States in 1950s. So from the 1900 onwards, there was this great scientific leap that brought in many new medicines. Over the course of 10 to 15 years, they discovered or invented penicillin and, and tetracycline and chloramphenicol and streptomycin. Now, many of us don't know what these things are, 
But rest assured, they're very important medicines. And, and the, the, ingenuity, the, the, the ingenuity of the human mind led us to discover these things in the weirdest of places, in mold, in cow dung, in the soil, even in the case of streptomycin, in chicken coops. So much so that Time magazine ran a cover saying that the remedies to all of our diseases is in our own backyard. Do you know, in 1950, 50% of medicines in circulation was unknown a decade before. 50% of all medicines in the 1950s were unknown 10 years before that. And because of the end of the Second World War and all of the, the affluence that brought and the, the, the economic development, you know, Americans started to buy you know, cars and houses and suits and vacations, and they, and they became healthier. They lived longer lives. And this is how the author describes it. The affluent society, the, 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 the rich society, also imagined itself as eternally young, with an accompanying guarantee of eternal health. The invincible society. The rich society imagined itself as eternally young, with an accompanying guarantee of eternal health, the invincible society. Do you know what are the two leading causes of death in the United States today? There, one is heart disease. Now, heart disease actually peaked in the 1960s and has been in decline ever since. We now know how to live with heart disease. But the joint leading cause of death today is cancer. Now, do you think cancer somehow magically appeared or evolved in the last 50 years? No. We have known about cancer for at least 4,000 years. The only difference is people never died of cancer because they died of something else. Or they never lived long enough to get it. And just when it looked like we had conquered everything, another villain appears to wake us from our dream. It strikes indiscriminately at young and old. It doesn't care for the status of the rich and poor. It once again makes the futility of pain and death an ever-present reality to confront. You see, in the healthiest society in the history of mankind, all it takes for people to be fearful is a lump or a dizzy spell or an unexplained period of tiredness. And maybe in, our, in the time of our grandkids, maybe they'll find a way to solve cancer. But death will still be a reality because the word of God makes it clear. It is appointed for man to die once and after that to judgment. We are all made in the image of God. We all have dignity and worth because of it. But because we are fallen, that image of God within us is marred and distorted. We long to be satisfied by chasing after the desires of our heart, but those desires consume us and rule over us. And our destiny is fearful and uncertain because we dread the judgment of our Creator when we reach the other side of the grave. 
So the question is, how do we recover the image of God in us? How can we do that? And the answer is, we cannot. But God can. Only God can do what is needed to recover his image within us. And he has done it in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. There's a song which goes, In the image of God we were made long ago, with the purpose divine, here his glory to show. But we failed him one day, and like sheep went astray, thinking not of the cost we his likeness had lost. But from eternity God had in mind the work of Calvary, the lost to find. From his heaven so broad, Christ came down, earth to trod, so that man might live again in the image of God. And we ask, who is this Jesus? He is the perfect image of the invisible God, the eternal Son. He came down to this earth and took on flesh. He was born into poverty. He was nearly killed when he was a defenseless child. He grew up far from the castles of the rich and of the powerful. He made his dwelling among the outcasts and the disenfranchised of society. And yet he was the perfect man, the true reflection of what it means to be in the image of God. Those who came to him knew that in seeing him, they had seen the Father. The downtrodden and the weak and the weary flocked to him because they found their hunger and their thirst satisfied in his presence. Jesus said that he had come so that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. And yet it all seemed to be for nothing as the perfect man lay upon the cross of Calvary, his dignity trampled upon, the sinless one bearing the punishment for the wickedness of our perverse desires, the eternal one coming face to face with death and the grave. But death could not hold him and the grave could not contain him. His death was the means of our redemption, the punishment for our sins, and his resurrection is the beginning of our restoration. And having completed his work, our Redeemer ascended to the heavens to take hold of his destiny, which is to sit at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. We now have the privilege to once again be in relationship with God, to have the freedom to once again enter into his presence. So how does our redemption recover the image of God within us? Firstly, we begin to grow more and more to be like God because the Spirit enables us to grow more and more to be like his Son, who is the perfect image of God. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 says that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 that we who behold the glory of the Lord are being transformed into his image. Secondly, we are no longer slaves to our desires. We are free to put off our old self, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, and put on the new self. As we read in Ephesians chapter 4, we put on the new self patterned in the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. We are no longer slaves to our desires. Finally, we no longer have to fear our future. Our destiny is certain because the day is coming when our restoration will be complete and we'll be with him for eternity. No condemnation awaits us because when he appears, John says, we shall be just like him. And every Christian's hope is that just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, one day we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. So what do we, the redeemed people of God, have to do in response 
to God's gracious restoration of his image within us. Let us strive to glorify him and enjoy him forever. But let us also recognize and respect the dignity of those around us, every man and woman, boy and girl, made in the image of God. Let us be the voice of those whose dignity is trampled upon, whose worth is arbitrarily devalued by society because they are unseen or unborn or unfit. But let us not stop there. Let us be concerned to bring those around us back into a proper relationship with God. Let us tell them about the Son who has made it possible to restore the image of God within them. Let us tell them that they no longer have to be consumed by their desires or to be fearful of their future. May God give us the strength and the courage to do all of this. Let us pray. Father God, we want to thank you because we are made in your image because you have bestowed upon us a worth and a dignity and a significance, Lord, that, that far exceeds anything else in this created universe. And yet, Lord, because of our sin and because of our choices, that image is marred and distorted within us. And yet, you send down your Son so that we could have eternal life, so that, so that your image within us could be recovered and restored, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that first of all, that we ourselves know how to put off the old self, to, 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 to put on the new self, which is created after your image, O Lord, to, to be continually be sanctified so that we are being transformed into your image day by day. We want to thank you, Lord, for the hope that, no, that we have because we are certain that one day we shall be transformed and that we shall be with you. And at, at the same time, we recognize, O Lord, that there are many people in society who are not afforded the dignity that we have. May we have the courage to speak up for them. Lord. May we also have the boldness to tell them, O oh Lord, that their lives are incomplete without them recovering the image of God within them, without them entering into a relationship with you through the agency of your Son. O oh Lord, we pray that as we head out into the world, that we will be bold and we will be courageous enough to stand up for your word and to, and to stand up for all the implications that it has in our lives and in the lives of others. Give us the boldness and the courage through your spirit. In Jesus' name we ask.